This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. We've got a different format today on the Plucked Chicken. And not only is Pastor Bruss in the studio, but also our dear friend, Pastor Oakry from Calvary Lutheran Church. Kairita. What happened was when COVID struck, we had to take all of our adult catechesis class and put it uh, put it to audio files. The catechumens then listened to those, and we were working our way through the book of Matthew. And can we? Can I just pa- interrupt there? For those who would like to to benefit from that, that's on the St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church, Topeka, Kansas website. Uh, if you go to the learning tab and drop down to uh, adult catechesis, you'll find those recordings. And so we got to the end of Matthew, and we thought, well, what next? And Pastor Bruss, if I'm not mistaken, you were the one to say, hey, let's invite Pastor Okri in and let's work our way through the gospel according to John. And so here we are. Excellent. Our, our goal is what we did in the last uh, with Matthew was we took one chapter at a time. And, and really, that was um, actually we took two chapters at a time, didn't we? Um, that was to keep ourselves efficient. And I think what we ought to do here is take one chapter at a time just so that that we have a distinct goal to, to finish every time we get together. Uh, but this is for the benefit of, certainly, of uh, the St. John's and the Calvary Lutheran Church folks and anybody else who'd like to tune in. This is going to get mounted on the Plucked Chicken website, correct? Yes, sir. Okay, very good. So why don't we begin? Uh, typically, uh, it, it's helpful to have somebody start off and, and read a chunk. And, uh, you know, really the first discrete chunk of text in the Gospel according to St. John is John 1, 1 through 1, 8, and maybe uh, we'll have Pastor Oakery so that everybody can enjoy that mellifluous voice. Lead us off with a reading of that, and tell us what uh, version, uh, what translation you're reading from. ESV. ESV. The approved version. That's not true. (laughs) In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The beginning of the gospel, according to St. John, is, is very interesting. Uh, and introductory passages in ancient works are very different from introductory passages in, in modern works. Here what John is doing is he's introducing us to the really the fundamental concepts uh, and vocabulary that he's going to be using throughout. So what are, what are some of the things that jump out at you here as, as big, big vocabulary that we're going to be tussling with uh, for the rest of the the gospel. Well, certainly word, and then it seems like we get a progression from word into life, and then very quickly move to light. Good. So we've got word, life, light. Uh, we've got darkness, mm-hmm. right? So that darkness is actually going to re-emerge later on. But uh, wouldn't you say the uh, in har hey? I mean, th- this is taking us right back to Genesis. Good. So Pastor Kearns is talking about the very first two words of the gospel according to St. John in Greek, en arche. And what's interesting about this is that in the, the beginning of Genesis is bereshit, 
Okay, in beginning, not in the beginning, but in beginning, it's not articulated. So there's no article, there's no the. That's exactly what John does here. It doesn't say en te arche, in the beginning. It says in beginning. And so you're right, he's tagging, totally tagging on to the beginning of Genesis. So that should set you off right there as to what this entire book is going to be about. It's going to be drawing heavily from the Old Testament. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. So there's a there's a really kind of not vocabul not merely vocabulary level intimation of what John is going to be up to here. That's that's really a good one. It's also going to be dealing uh, with the pre-incarnate hypostasis of the logos. That you know, we should unpack that a little bit, right? So pre-incarnate. This is the second person of the Trinity prior to the incarnation. Hypostasis is the word for person, so that's the technical theological term, and logos is who Christ is from uh, one, of, one of the identifiers of, of the second person of the Trinity, the, the, the logos, the word. Now I have a question there. We're clearly being drawn back into Genesis with this logos, the word, and of course uh, how significant the speaking of God is in Genesis 1. Where else can we look in scripture to see this idea of God speaking uh, being kind of a personification idea. Yeah, so there's, um, you know, a lot of the theology of the prologue, uh, and the prologue really goes all the way through verse 18 of, um, of, of the Gospel according to St. John, is in um, Psalm 32 or 33, and I can't remember the, the English numeration. Psalm 33, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsels of the Lord stand forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven, he sees the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by it great might, by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So isn't that a wonderful psalm? When it, if you just if you just hook in, if you if you can hook in through that concept of the word, right? To Psalm thirty-three, uh, think of think of the crush of 
thematics that come out there, right? There's salvation in, in there. There's trusting in the Lord. There's his people. We're going to run into his people a little bit in, in like verse 11 of the prologue. And um, so all of this wonderful stuff uh, is being kind of evoked um, by that very first statement in, 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 uh, in the gospel according to St. John, in the beginning was the word. But wouldn't you say as well that this word is the, the name of the second person of the Trinity before his incarnation? Because once verse 14 comes about, uh, the word became flesh. This is who this is. This is his name uh, when he's walking in the cool of the garden. This is his name when he puts his arm around Abraham and takes him outside and shows him all the stars and says that your descendants will outnumber the stars. I mean, this is the same one who's uh, reconnoitering with Joshua. This is the same one who is in the burning bush. This is who this is. Oh, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah, the question of of the name is really interesting, though. In my in my um, mind, is 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 he the word according to his office, or is this his proper name? That's a great question. Uh, I mean, typically, typical dogmatics would say that that the name of the second person is the Son, right? Uh, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have a word office. A communicative office. And in fact, every single one of those instances you brought up, so interesting, right? It is God communicating with his people through the second person. By means of the, the word. word. Right. Yeah. And, and I tend to see it as an office because it isn't fun. The speaking of God isn't fundamental to who he is. It was his speaking that caused creation. And I see that as uh, this logos as his creative office. Yeah, creative and and salvific ultimately, right? right? Which is which, which is, is recreation, exactly, right? Yeah. So the act of creation, the act of redemption, the act of sanctification are are in God's way of doing things, one and the same thing. Yeah, right. I, and it's tremendous. And I think that's an insight that it took me a long time to make. Here is that 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 logos spoken in Genesis was the creative word, and he's saying that same creative word is coming to us. And recreation is upon us. And I think that's a, such an important idea to have in your mind as Jesus is functioning, especially in John. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. And there, I mean, there's just so much here. Um, you know, the other place where this comes up it, in Proverbs, um, he's Sophia, right? In Proverbs 8.22, he's wisdom. And um, one of the, um, uh, in the wisdom of, of Jesus Ben Sirach, uh, maybe uh, chapter 13 or 14, you get the combination of the, of logos, the word, and Sophia, wisdom. And so there's no doubt that the original Jewish audience was, when they heard word, they're also, they're, they're also hearing overtones of Sophia, uh, this, this um, person that was next to God at the beginning of his works uh, in Proverbs chapter 8. And that's a very important thing for the for the um, understand uh, the proper understanding of uh, of the theology of the second person. So the second person is not created. Uh, the second person is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, meaning that He has existed in eternity. Now, 
what's can I just I, I don't want to just hold forth here, but there's a really interesting thing here. When you look in Greek, uh, in the in this in these first few words of the prologue according to Saint John, all of the verbs uh, that are the verbs attached to being, they fall into two categories. There's stuff that has absolute existence, right? And that the verb there is a me in Greek. And then there's the verb that means uh, that that talks about things that do have existence, but it's it's a temporary existence. It comes and it goes. And the verb there is gignomai. Okay, now Genesis, uh, not Genesis, Exodus chapter three. Um, the Lord identifies Himself to Abraham, and Abraham says, "Who shall I say sent me?" Right? And the Lord responds, uh, "I am who am." Not I am who I am, which sounds like. You know, dude, get your hands off, man. I'm, I am who I am, <laughs> right? That sounds like a, a 1970s, um, you know, a, a American rebel. That's not what God is saying. He's saying, I am who am. I have, in other words, I am the ground of existence, is what he tells Abraham. Now, in Greek, in Greek, that is ego emi haon. I am the one who am. And so anytime you see these be verbs attached to people in the gospel according to St. John, it's attached only to the divinity. All other things come into being and go out of being. With one exception, it's the healing of the blind man at the pool of, uh, of, of Bethesda. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. Yeah. Now, I think this this whole idea of, of who God is, because, of course, we're getting into that, and there's been a lot of misreading of just even these, this first verse as to who uh, who this Logos is compared to God. Um, I, I love the idea of Yahweh just saying, I am the God who is the ground of being, who exists. Because I, I can't help but think that he's making a contrast with the Egyptian gods and the other gods of the of the ancient Middle East who were the gods of rivers? Oh, who, who are you? I'm the god of this river. Oh, I'm the god of this mountain. I'm the god of, of, of this desert. Who are you? I'm the god that is. And it's, it just blows everything out of the water. And it, it is, I, I, you, you know this better than I do, but he is such a, that has to be such a radical way of thinking about divinity for that culture. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to go back to something that was said about wisdom. It's interesting to note that the prophet who wrote Genesis wasn't there at creation. Moses. But wisdom was. Right. And wisdom is what is poured into the heart of, well, of the believer. Mm -hmm. This is what actually Augustine says in City of God. Oh, well, <laughs> to make use of recent reading. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's a good point, too, that uh, we are getting into that language of witnessing, which is the uh, next big section of another big theme word for John. Absolutely. Witnessing. It is huge. I don't mean to sort of shortcut us from getting there, but could we could we do just a couple quickie things on, on the first five verses? Oh, of course. Okay. So... Why don't you read read it, and I will, just for the sake of the reader, I will, when you ever come to a be or come into being or create verb, okay. pause and let me give the Greek the Greek verb underneath it so that people can start to see just how yeah. strong, what the imprint here. Yeah. 
In the beginning was a me, the word, and the word was a me with God, and the word was a me, God. He was a me in the beginning with God. All things were gignomai made through him, and without him was gignomai not anything made that was gignomai made. In him was a me life. And the life was a me, the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Isn't that interesting? So, so if it, hopefully somebody could pay attention to how we were doing that. But, but it really, there's this ontological division between ultimate existence, God, and things that come into and go out of being. Mm-hmm. And He's the ground of existence. Now, what's interesting about this in, in Johannine soteriology, right? In, in the uh, teaching of salvation in John is that what Christ does by coming into the flesh is he, okay, so Adam and Eve lost their connection with the ground of being by, dis, by not trusting in God anymore. And what God in Christ does is he reconstitutes that connection and re-bestows being on his fallen, death-bound creatures. So a new humanity. Yes, a new humanity. With communion with God and communion towards one another. Good. So that Jesus can say, Ego a me. I am the resurrection and the life. Isn't that something? Well, you think about the text for this coming Sunday in the historic lectionary, and uh, everybody is familiar with it, where you've got Jesus talking about the lost coin and the lost sheep. I think it's very easy for any of us to look at that as an individual thing. Jesus found me. We sing Amazing Grace. I was once lost and now I'm found, blah, blah, blah. That's not necessarily wrong. But to think of it like you're talking about in this overarching arc of salvation, that in Adam, Adam is the lost sheep. And he rep- what he represents is this lost humanity. And Jesus is the one who takes the perilous path to follow the lost sheep and to put it on his shoulders and make his way home. And there's a huge celebration called the Wedding Feast of the Lamb. Now, we we as individuals are caught up in that, but to see it as the overarching sum of the mission of Christ Jesus compared to, oh, he just likes to go looking for lost stuff. That's good, you know. So, so really, what you're suggesting uh, and saying, and, and I think it's right, is that is that John takes a telescope view of the whole thing. He's look he's looking at salvation telescopically and not just kind of on this small individual basis. Now, it's not to say that the individual basis isn't there, right, at all. Uh, but, but it, it plays a, a secondary role. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. He does something cosmic uh, when he takes on human flesh. Right. And even to to push it a little further, I mean, you think about how Jesus in those two parables, he's the man who goes after the lost sheep, and he's also the woman who goes after the lost coin. And going back to what you said earlier, here you've got the logos uh, in the beginning and wisdom, which is feminine. Um, that's interesting. That's re- even in Hebrew. Right. Yeah. Davar. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. What a comfort that is that our salvation truly should be viewed telescopically. That God does something 
that affects all of humanity in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. I, I like what you're saying here too, because it reminds me that when the sheep was found, he didn't just say, hey, look, I found you. <laughs> he brought it back to where it belonged into a flock. Uh, when the lost coin was found, the woman didn't say, oh, look, I found you and just like, leave it on the floor there. It went back into the purse with the other coins. And of course, the son returns and, and in the same way, uh, it's into a household. And I think that you're absolutely right. We need to push back because scripture does not allow room for it on this atomized view of our of our life of faith. Uh, Christ finding us means we are drawn into a place of, of found, the household of God. Uh, I'm not simply a child of God. I'm one of the children of God. And we're, we're all in this together. Yeah, and we stay in it together uh, by gathering around his word and sacrament. Some people view being a child of God as, yeah, sure, I, got I was the sheep that got found. I was the coin that got found. And I'm going to, damn it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love uh, watching the flock from afar. And I'm going to love sitting on the mantle all by myself and not being in the bag of coins. Yeah. And that's just not how it works. No, it's not. And, and uh, even push on the analogy a little bit more you you got the sheep that comes back into the fold as you said but most likely for this lost coin it wasn't just what was in her purse it most likely either a made up a string of jewelry or was uh, something that went into her hair that was a part of a dowry i mean this was precious to her it was valuable it wasn't just i lost a lost a you know a shekel here sure. to bring that lost coin back in onto that string uh, it, it's the exact same thing. And th the point is, it is, going back to what you said, it, it, what Christ Jesus has done has brought about a new humanity. Or, as you said earlier, like a, a new creation. Yeah, and I just preached on Romans 6, past the baptism part, where you're slave of righteousness. And Paul makes this point where when you are a slave to, to sin... Uh, you feel like you're free because righteousness doesn't have a claim on you. Right. Yeah. And yeah. and yet, and then you're brought into this household of faith. And of course, every household has rules. And what makes the sheep want to admire the flock from afar? Because there's that part in us that says, well, it's okay, but I don't want to play by by your rules. I still want to call the shots. And, and it's exactly what you're saying about this ground of being and how in, fundamental it is. Because... If you don't have that ground of being, it's not like you can find another ground of being in this world. You're the chaff that gets blown away in the wind. You're not rooted. And, you know, that, that makes me start to think about, like, like, I am the vine. You are the branches. You have to be rooted, grafted into me for any security, for any life flowing into you in this world. And, you know, that's such a, such a fundamental part. And again, how are we? How are we fed and nourished and root and, and rooted in Christ? Uh, it's not through our just imaginings of of how nice He is. It is Word and Sacrament. It is these grounded things. Well, to push on what you said just a little bit, to think that you're the branch. We know who the vine is, and we know who the vine dresser is. How does the branch feed off of the vine? It's through the sap, so to speak, that runs through the vine. Uh, what is what is the sap that you feed off? Yeah, it's the, his body and blood. Yeah, the, the <laughs> this is how the yeah. branch. This is how the branch is able to produce fruit. Yep. Which brings us to that light, that life theme that only gets touched on very briefly here. But of course, Jesus will proclaim it very boldly, uh, repeatedly well, through the text. Can, all I'm trying to say is, you've got in Luke uh, Jesus summing up 
the entire unfolding drama of salvation in, I don't even know what it is, 10, 15 words. Yeah. And what we just read here in the first chapter of John, first, what, three verses? I mean, who can do this? Who can, who, who can span God, the Holy Spirit, right, yeah, exactly millennia yeah. of God's yeah. work, and just uh, uh, in such concise, uh, powerful ways? And we'll be reminding our re- our listeners very often of uh, Saint Augustine's very wise word about the gospel according to Saint John that is shallow enough. It's like a river, shallow enough for a child to wade safely into, and deep enough for an elephant to drown in. And w- we're going to be drowning like elephants quite often. Augustine is talking to somebody else or referring to somebody else who said of these words that Pastor Oakry just read, you paint them in gold upon the church building. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So can I, can I point out another just amazing thing? Where was Eve? So Adam, Adam was created. Uh, God formed him from the dust of the ground, right? Um, and then he breathed in him. <laughs> The, the, the net, he became a nephesh, right? Uh, a, a living being. Um, where was Eve? She was in Adam. Yeah. All right. Now, Eve is a transliteration of, of um, chaya, which means life in Hebrew. Now, look at verse four. In him was life, was Eve. Life was Eve. In, so so we have second Adam theology here already, yeah. right at the very beginning. God, is, God in Christ is going to create an entirely new... This is, this is the restart button. Give me that Bible. <laughs> I, now that's fascinating to me because one thing that does frustrate me is how we get hung up on Adam and Eve. We, we, uh, we separate them from each other. And I think that's such a Western mindset is to fractalize or granulate things as much as we can whereas from a biblical perspective adam and eve one flesh there's no distinction between their sin there's a few places where it gets highlighted but very rarely and they're in it together and so when we talk about this is so fascinating to me because we talk about the new adam all the time but the new adam is the new eve as well and it's it's not excluding at all right that's a good point but pastor bruss say that one more time in him was life so who's the him there? That's the logos. In, right. in the word was zdoe, was chaya, was life. Why? Because she is the mother of all living. Right. I mean, that you got to hear the evocation from Genesis chapter four. There. This is a this is a, a rabbit hole, but I think it's worth talking about. This is the thing that motivated. Um, uh, well, this is the animus, the the kind of guts of of the Jewish, of God's Jewish believers. It's the guts of his Christian, holy Christian church too. The word, the word matters. And teaching our children to be very good readers. And this sounds like a a stupid thing. Oh, you know what? Like it's just a mere kind of, you know, three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic kind of thing. That's not it at all. Lutherans are motivated in their education to create really good readers. Why? Because God communicates through his word. Okay, but you could fall off the horse on the other side in that, I think. And coming from the evangelical world, I've seen this so many times, is that, yeah, we're focused on the word. But what we can do is we can get so focused on the word that we, we're missing the, the main point, the thrust. We want to deal with some little, um, you know, gnat 
out here. That's some because little... they're not good readers, right? So, so if you take somebody, so what I'm talking about is teaching people how to read, like, how do you approach any new document? What are the basic presuppositions you have in coming to the document? Do, do you believe that it's, that it's words communicate a reality or not? Uh, how do you understand a simile or a metaphor? How do you recognize a simile or a metaphor? How do you identify the main kernel that the author is trying to get at? Right? All of these things have to do with the art of reading well. I would argue that what you've got is a bunch of uneducated ninnies you know, thinking that just by reading they're going to absorb something without having a, the tools to do it properly. Well, sure. And let, let me just give you an example, something that we've already touched on. People read of the woman and the lost coin, just as we, yeah. we mentioned. And they want to make a big deal over once she finds it, she throws a party that's probably going to cost more than the actual worth of the coin. Who gives a flying flip? <laughs> exactly. That, that is yeah. not the point. Right, right. That, that's what I'm trying to say is that we can waste a lot of air and a lot of ink and a lot of paper over superfluous things because we're so committed to the word right but that's because they're missing genre they're missing uh, uses of languages that are uh, com uh, complex but but easy once you kind of get into them it's the same way you misread revelation all the time i've never read it fair enough <laughs> well don't you're you're you're, you're, you're you're not mature enough yet that's the point but you you know it's not just reading of scripture it's re you know when Anything. when we teach our children to read they need to read broadly and widely they need to be people we need to be yeah. people fundamentally of the of all books so that we can read the book this is but we also have a problem with especially in the evangelical world and you've mentioned this many times before pastor bros is this whole reading the bible literally instead of naturally according to its natural meaning yeah yep and, and i totally agree with you on that because i feel like this whole like our culture of testing and everything it makes people good at it doesn't make them good re it doesn't make them good thinkers and i think maybe that's part of it too a good reader is a good thinker and being you have to be exposed to thinking in literature to do that, yeah, that's 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 really that's really good. I'm sorry, that was a rabbit hole, but I but I do, uh, I just want to connect it to our education. Right? I want to I want to push back on this uh, Zoe thing, though. Okay, because at this point we're talking about the 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 pre-incarnate logos. Mm -hmm. Is it proper to say? And and it sounds like you're talking about the post-incarnate logos, Christ possessing Eve because she's the mother of all life. Help help me unpack that. I so I, I think what I want to say is that there's certainly an interesting verbal connection here. Number one, number two, Adam receives the image of God. That image. What's so interesting is that that image of God uh, is Genesis one twenty six ish. Um, it says he created him in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All right. Yeah. Okay. So the image of God is partly the complementarity of Eve. Sure. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that there's a fourth person in the Trinity here, and I I don't want anyone to hear that. Uh, but what I do want to say is that Eve, as the mother of all living, is 
an image, a sort of prophetic image of the second Adam as the giver of life. And I can appreciate that. And I, I certainly, you see Christ as bringing forward not just Adam and his newness, but Eve and her newness. And, and that rebirth and baptism is, is where we experience that uh, most directly. Part of what we're seeing here is just the old doctrine of, of creation, which is that he still sustains it. In him is life. We're not this free-floating universe that we think we are. Like the deistic clockmaker. Right. Yeah, 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 good. Yeah, so should we move on to the... Uh, <laughs> we're going to try to get through one chapter. I think it's we, gonna well, happen. the prologue's so dense. It is so dense. Should we go to uh, verses 6 through 8 and take a look at those? Yeah. I used to think that it was the weirdest thing that here we have this insertion about John. I agree. It seems weird. Like, why is John such a big deal? Because he barely pops up in John other than right here in the very beginning. Right. But there is clearly some confusion about who the Messiah is in early Christianity. If you look at uh, Acts chapter 19, this is where Paul goes to Ephesus. He goes there. And there are these, uh, these people are being taught by Apollos, right? And uh, he says, have you been baptized with the Spirit? And they said, we don't even know, if, we didn't even know there was a Spirit. We have only received the baptism of John. And it's clear, too, uh, later on here in, verse, in chapter 1, that people go out to see John at the, at the Jordan, and they say, hey, dude, are you the guy that we've been waiting for? So they, John has, even the forerunner of our Lord was mistaken for our Lord. But wouldn't you say, this is always a problem, say, in red letter editions of, of the Bible. You know, John 3.16, I know I'm jumping ahead here, but in John 3.16, it's like John is speaking. Jesus isn't speaking, but it's read as if Jesus were speaking. Oh, that's such a, in John, this is a huge problem. Where, where, does the, where does his discourse, where does Christ's discourse end and where does John, the editor, kind of jump in and, and give how we should understand this? Right. Yeah. We'll get to it in three, but uh, it seems that John, like everything comes together. What is the context of 315, 314? What is that? Well, well the, 314 uh, is, the, is the snake lifted up in the wilderness. Okay. Right. Um, so th- 314 is, and just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, thus is it necessary that the Son of Man be lifted up in order that everybody who believes in him might have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he... Yeah. Right. So John is speaking there. Right. Maybe. May- well, maybe. We, yeah, exactly. But maybe. the problem is that the red letter edition overdetermines it. Of course. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you have people who... who seriously believe that the only thing that should be preached in church are the red letters. Yeah. Which it's, is, it's just weird. It is weird. Totally. Yeah. That's, but that, but again, that has to do with a well-trained laity and clergy who know how to read a text. Yeah. Now let's be real clear. Uh, my Bible has quotes, meaning that Jesus is carrying a thought forward. So, so even yours, it's shows, not a red letter, but yeah. it's harder to see. Uh, but we're going to run into some of these things um, when uh, Jesus says, out of his heart will flow living waters. There's some interesting ways you could parse 
that sentence too. Good. And so one of the things that we should point out right now is that um, the, an ancient text was written in unseals. And unseals are capital letters. There was no punctuation, no Greek accents, no nothing. No spacing. No spacing whatsoever. And so um, all of the punctuation, quotation marks, uh, paragraphing, everything like that is an import uh, f- that, that really doesn't start until the Byzantine humanism in the eight, nine hundreds, uh, AD. That's, that's well after the text was written in connection with the prologue stuff and this question about John, can we jump to John, uh, chapter one, verse 19 and following? Mm-hmm. I know this is getting way out, yeah. but it says, and this is the witness of John when Jews sent to him, uh, from Jerusalem, priests and Levites in order to ask him, who are you? All right. The are there is a me. And he confessed, and he did not deny, and he confessed that I am, he breaks up ego a me. He says, ego uk a me. I am not. Then I am not the Christ. And they asked him, who then? Are you Elijah? Again, a me. And John said, Ukemi, I am not. So again, the 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 me the ami verb shows up. Then they say, "Are you the prophet?" And he responded, "Nope." <laughs> but what's interesting here is that John, in his response to the to these inquirers, draws a clear. He he observes the ontological distinction that John, the writer, set up in the first four verses of his gospel between things that come into being and go out of being. And and he denies any connection, uh, ontological connection with God. He is not God, in other words. Isn't that cool? Very cool. It also shows how familiar he was with Genesis and how smart he was. Go ahead. But but you're right. I mean, how, how how familiar he was with Genesis, with Exodus, with uh, Isaiah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 right. The Psalms. Yeah. Now it's interesting. My translation, and I'm sure many of uh, the listeners will run into this, is that it's not. And this is the witness of John, which would keep a very strong line. But mine says testimony, which is testimony in a court is your eyewitness account. I understand mm-hmm. that, but I think sometimes we can get tripped up by these. English is always good because we usually have five words that can stand in for one. Uh, and uh, and so uh, to recognize that this is the witness that he's proclaiming, as it were. And not his court testimony. Right. Yeah. 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 And so how does it handle it uh, in your translation in uh, like verses uh, seven, um, seven and eight in, in the prologue. It's all witness language. Oh, it is. That's what's interesting. Oh, so, so it's witness language there in your translation, but when we get to John 119 it's and following, testimony. it's testimony language. Oh. Which I think would confuse a reader to, yeah. to not see that connection. Right. Absolutely. That's good. The next thing to notice here in verse seven is, is a theme that, that we've already mentioned that comes up pretty loud and clear throughout the gospel, and it's, it's faith, right? Um, that the witness gives rise to faith. This is very important. Right. Um, I also want to talk about the content of his witness because he doesn't just point at the light here is Jesus and he points at Jesus. He doesn't just say, look, there's the light. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I think that's very important for us to understand 
This is not generic light or generic goodness. This is salvific light. This is the power of God to save through sacrifice. That's the light that's being shine. Yes. So following, just, just, if you follow the chain here, verse 5, um, verse 4 actually, go back to verse 4. In him was Haya, was life. Okay, so, so, so there's a distinction between Christ and the life here. And the life was the light of men. All right, so now this life that he gives is, is not him. Neither is the light that he gives mm-hmm. not him. John's job is to bear witness, verse 7, is to bear witness concerning the light, which is the message about Christ. Then we get to verse 8. He himself was not the light, but he came in order to witness about the light. This is the message. Verse 9 now is very important. The true light, the one which enlightens every human being, was coming into the world. Now, when we hear this in English, what we hear is he wasn't there yet, but he was on his way. That's that's not what coming means in Greek. It's it. What it means is that this is God's constant message to humanity through his word. It had been coming and it still was coming into the world. All right. So it's imperfect. It's Im- it's imperfect because it's conti- it keeps happening. It, it keeps on happening. So it's not as if as it you know it, it's coming, it's coming, it's co- oh it's now it's here. It's not that's not the idea of behind this in Greek. It's it's that it is in the it is always in the process of coming, which is exactly how we experience salvation in church. It's constantly in the process of coming through the preaching of the word, through the sacrament. It's. We don't get to sit back and say, oh, it, it's now come to me and I'm good, right? Right. And this goes to Pastor Kearns' earlier point uh, about John's deep knowledge of the of the Old Testament. Um, he's looking at that entire Old Testament and saying, hey, folks, this was this has always been the light, the one that is coming into the world. Right. And, 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 and so that is to say that John's witness isn't a unique witness. And that's and that's really important for us to understand. He is just the 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 last Old Testament witness of it. And now, and then as we go forward and look at this witness language, we will see that he sends out a new bunch of witnesses of the fullness of the light into the world. Yeah, that's good. Um, there's a permanence to this witness because the witness is the life, and the life is. In the Logos, the Word, and the Word exists in eternity. And and we see that even in our own confession, where we say, you know, I believe in uh, the apostolic uh, faith, right? The apostolic faith is the faith, the, our faith built on the witness of the apostles, mm-hmm. which is exactly what we saw earlier, bear witness that all might believe through him. Mm-hmm. So we come to verse 10. Good. So what was, you know, it, what was in the world? It was in the world. The light. Yeah. It was already there. It was already there through God's word. And look at what it says. And the world came into existence through it, the word. And then we get this really interesting shift. The world did not know him. 
That's very clear in Greek. Right, and it's not clear at all here in the English. It's he, he, he across the board. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Which is, you know, I, I don't want to push on this too much, but when the world didn't know him, it's like he's wearing a mask. They didn't, they didn't see him for who he is. It goes back to what you've said many times. You know, Jesus, uh, you know, probably crooked nose, chipped tooth. Jew, little Jewish guy. Right. Just not what you would... I mean, look, we've already got a, we've already got a picture of this where uh, David is not nearly as handsome as his brothers. You've got to be kidding me. This is the next king of Israel. And so this is a picture of, of really a Jesus. When you look at him, I mean, the Bible says he has no comely appearance. Right, in Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In connection with this uh, business about the world not knowing him uh, through his work, uh, we have uh, also the witness of St. Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 20 and following, uh, maybe 19 and following. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. That perception language is so important and significant, and I think we don't connect the dots to that with the light. We always just kind of make the light kind of a, I think we've seen too many movies of kind of a, like a blinding light shining, and and God's light is an illuminating light. Like you're saying, even like the light of nature, I, yeah. the light connected to nature, yeah, which ref, which is a reflection of His glory. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, is that how yeah. You're, yeah. I mean, there there is a we we always I think imagine God as this blinding, terrible light, and what Scripture more often points out is that it is a illuminating light. Now, granted, when you're living in the darkness and any light shines on you, it stings, um, and which is part of the reason why people flee from the light. But uh, it is uh, important to see like things are being revealed that had been hidden. That's the point. And we don't appreciate that enough, I think, grappling with this text. And they've been revealed from the beginning. Yeah, that's interesting, right? And so Adam and Eve saw him, sure. didn't they? Right? But once they fell into sin, that view became clouded. Yeah. I've read before, I can't put my finger on the source, that Adam and Eve, a part of this being made in the image of God, manifested a, a glowing, a light on them that was lost who told you you were naked? Uh, it, it was lost at, at the fall. And so Jesus is the true light, but their reflection of that, they maintained an effulgence of the same. Right. Yeah. And now it's gone. Right. Yeah. But Which is intriguing when you think about Moses recapturing that <laughs> right. on the mount. That's very interesting, too. God. Yeah. And yeah. you think about as well how the angels are referred to as, uh, um, well, you think about even Lucifer, the light bearer. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. Yeah. I think now we're kind of stepping into a place, though, where we're starting to talk about one of the things the Gospels do spend some time on is that why, why is this Jesus so hard for people to get? Why do some receive him and not others? Why does the world not know him when he comes? Why wouldn't they all go, oh, there he is. John the prophet pointed to him. Obviously, it's him. Why is there so much doubt 
and even just flat out rejection of him. And it'll be and I'm and it'll be interesting to see how John handles that and, and he uses this reception language. Good. Yeah, and that takes us takes us right into verse eleven, right? He came into his own things and his own people did not receive him. Because what they didn't meet his expectations, they didn't uh, of what a king should look like, or what a messiah should look like, or he's too human, or he his fingernails are dirty. I mean, what? Well, I, I think there's a big reason and a little reason, right? So those those every one of those things you might have said is is like a little reason. This is my excuse, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the big reason is that humanity cut off from the very ground of their existence couldn't recognize it if it hit him in the face and what Christ does is he reconstitutes that relationship and it's a i mean it's entirely miraculous it's the work of the holy spirit to do this right it's, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 uh, the natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit of god for they are spiritually discerned it has to be the work of the spirit that brings this about it's it's really a mystery. I mean, you 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 alluded to it, and you just hit it right between the eyebrows. So, isn't this where Paul? I believe it's Paul who's talking about the enlightening of the eyes. He's talking about that they would see Christ for who He is and for what He's done, and that it would be a miraculous, as we would say, conversion. Yeah, really. I maybe at the end of the day, it's because. God shows his love for the world. God reconstitutes the relationship between humanity and himself in a way that's just totally unexpected. Uh, He gives his son into the flesh. That son suffers and dies. And if you want to see the the true heart of God, actually this is a law gospel kind of thing. If you want to see the true heart of God, you you must see him as the self-giving God the one who gives his son into the flesh. What our nature bristles at, I think, is that, look, if if I don't recognize the ground of my own existence, who's the ground of my own existence? Me. Me, myself, and I, right? And when somebody else offers himself to be that, and in fact is it, I will naturally bristle at that and reject it. I think that the... Natural man looks at a Christian and thinks there are a bunch of pod people and pot say pot. What is a pod people? Oh my goodness. I always like teaching you pop culture, Pastor Russ, these plant like things take people and replace them with pods and they're all interconnected and it's terrifying and every, and all the people are running around trying to avoid this because they don't want to lose their freedom. They don't want to lose their identity and the pod people always come along and say, no, this is wonderful. We have such a sense of community and identity. We all belong to each other in harmony. And it's always played off as you absolutely 100% don't want that. You don't want to be a pod people. You don't want to be a pod people because you don't want to lose your identity. I think that is the cry of the old Adam. I don't want to lose control. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's the cry of even the congregation saying, I don't want God to be, I don't want God to tell me that things that I want to be okay are, are wrong. And I don't want to tell me, I don't, and things I think are wrong are okay. Those things that offends me. Mm-hmm. Well, of course it offends you. It offends the old Adam. It, yeah. And, and actually and, 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 to and, help not, them recognize that is helpful too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think 
one of the places we're going to see this most powerfully is John 6. And it's a and it's a complicated discourse because I think it's wrestling with this very difficult subject of I'm giving myself to you completely. Like I'm I'm not just coming to you with words. I'm coming I'm giving you my body to eat, my flesh to drink. It's all here. And they go, "No thank you." And many disciples leave him. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to see them wrestle with why some receive and why and, and how some do. And of course the perception is a m- m- miracle. But there are things hardwired into our sinful nature that just make us say, I don't want that because I don't want God to be in control because that makes me less instead of more. I, I like your identity thing. Yeah. I think that's really helpful that, that our identity is constituted subjectively, right, within ourselves and not from the outside. It's not granted from the outside, which, of course, is just such a bunch of it's – it's a fiction no matter how you cut it, Right. I mean, your genetic material is your mom and dad's genetic material. Yeah. That was given to you. Yeah. I always love it when somebody takes credit for how smart they are. And I was like, I mean, if anything, you should be thanking mom and dad. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah, I mean, not, right. You, you didn't give yourself that IQ. Yeah. That's good. I mean, that's a great, for instance. Well, I mean, there, there is an identity switch in, in, chap, in verse 12. As many as received him, he gave to them the exousia, the ability, the power, the authority to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Now, this is, is this the first, this is the first place in John where the name comes up. Yeah, you're right. And, and how significant it is. And I think there is a connection to be made between, we were talking, we were touching on this briefly before there is a connection to be made between the word and the name. Uh, Cause I mean, you see it in the old Testament all the time. Names on things are identifying markers, right? And so, what is the name that we're talking about here? Is it Yahweh? Is it Jesus? I mean, is it both? Yes. Is it all? Is it, yeah, 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 right, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that is so interesting. Can I, uh, just, a, just another thing here. If you go back to Genesis, the Lord begins to give Adam dominion over the animals by pulling all the animals in front of him and saying, Name them. Name them, yep. And if Which, you, again, goes back to the absolute intelligence. I mean, to be able to do that. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. You, Adam, He's looking you, at the... You've been around for 15 minutes. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and you're not going to give them stupid names. Right, like, right. You're going to give them names that are spot. That, that encompass what they're meant to be exactly. yeah. in creation. Exactly. Right. And But to name something is to have power over it. What's interesting is that, is that Adam does not name Eve until after the fallen sin. She's just <laughs> the woman. Um and uh, it's in Genesis 4 that he, that he gives her the name. And he gives her a really good name based upon the fall. You would think that it would be horrible what he right, would call right. it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You old wench. Exactly. <laughs> in fact, oh, I mean, there's just like maybe Adam gets way more of the gospel than we understand. Well, so look, I he mean, does. he does. Because he's saved. He believes. Right. It, Genesis 3.15 has already been articulated that her seed is going to crush the head of Satan. Of course. And, of, and of course she becomes the mother of all living, right? Yeah. Uh, but the point is this, that, that there is control. If, if you know the name of the thing, you have control over the thing. And this is a very ancient way of thinking. And exorcism even? Yes, exorcism, calling on the name of a deity. So there are, we, we see ancient prayers, for example, in the classical world where they'll, they'll list off like t- 
you know, hundreds of names for the deity. And the reason you use all those names for the deity has to do with kind of like the mood of the deity that day. What name does he want to be called by today? And so, so he's so capricious that we want to make sure that we, we get the one that he's That he's going to respond to today, yeah. yeah. But then you have control over him. Same thing, I think, is, is going on here, that God bestows his concrete name. We don't have to guess at it. It's Yahweh, it's the Word, it's Jesus Christ. He bestows that name, and through that, he gives us exousia. He gives us power to become his children. Knowing the name gives us, places God at our disposal. Isn't, isn't that an interesting thing? Well, and then when you add the liturgy in the sense that when we begin a divine service, we place the name upon people. At the end of the service, we place the name upon people. God says, if you want to bless my people, this is what you do. You put my name upon them. When they're baptized, the name of God is put upon them. Yeah, and isn't it interesting? The invocation is kind of a two-way street in a, in a sense. It's God placing his name upon the people and the people approaching God in his name. So Jesus says to the demons, what's your name? And they say, legion, for we are many. Right. And then he has power over them. Not that he didn't have power over them. Fair. Right, right. Look, we know how this works. Even if you think this is just like I'm making this stuff up, go down to Kansas Avenue, uh, see, see somebody you know two blocks down the way and say, hey, you! They're just going to keep walking. But if you said, hey, Daniel, you know what Daniel's going to do. Yeah, He's going to recognize his name and turn around. You have control over him. Yeah. And why do we use the full name of our children when we are not too happy with them? <laughs> you know? That's right. So when we come to verse 13, and this is uh, what I was messing around with uh, just a few moments ago, when you see who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To think that you have people who actually believe that they're choosing, using their own free will. I mean, it's very clear there that that has nothing to do with it. Focus focus on the verb here, right? The word is born. No one chooses a birth. Right. right. What, when's your birthday, Pastor Bruss? Uh, July 15th. Why'd you choose that date? <laughs> I did not. I did not. It just happened. Right. Now, here's a question. What is being pushed at here by, by, by the knots? I always think knots are interesting because mm-hmm. you're trying to exclude things. Who, who was believing that you were born of blood? Who believed that you were born of, of human will or of, hu- or of, or of the flesh? And, and does he mean flesh like mortal flesh or does he mean flesh like sarxy, sinful flesh? What are, what, what's the language he's getting at here? Because I think it's easy to kind of skip over that part and be like, well, I don't, okay, it means something significant but i'm not exactly sure what i agree i've i've i think this is um there's a lot to be said here so um verse 13 who were not born of yours says blood right that's how it translates Mm -hmm. literally in greek it says who not out of bloods plural Oh, so it's kind of, it's a gang related. The it's Bloods. The Crips? Yeah, I mean, the Crips and the Bloods, yeah. <laughs> no, um, there's something else going on here. It's not uk ex haimatos, like singular blood. It's mm-hmm. out of bloods and not out of the will of the flesh uh, and not out of the will of man. Why, why couldn't that be referring to people groups? Different bloods? 
like this bloodline or that bloodline? I, uh, do, do, do they, does the Old Testament, yeah, do they talk that way? I've, I've actually really wondered um, it, how this is connected to, has, has kind of a multi-layer connection to um, the entry of death into the world, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there was no shedding of blood prior to the, prior to the, mm-hmm. um, so, so in other words, this is like the, 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 the deathly existence. We're not born out of the deathly existence, but also connected to the temple sacrifices uh, where there's the shedding of blood for life. Could it be that this is not summoned forth by human action? Your sacrifice, you didn't reach the the total amount of blood spilt in the temple to make this happen. Uh, there was no amount of flesh killed on the altar to make this happen. It wasn't your It wasn't your human will at all that made this happen. This was God, and this was his promise from the very beginning. This is a gracious thing, not a not a thing. And again, it's trying to teach us. We never controlled this, and we still don't. <laughs> well, going back to the lost sheep, what did the lost sheep do to get the man to come after it? Nothing. He got lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. I mean, that's 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 the great analogy. That's a perfect analogy of this. What's the difference between the will of flesh and the will of man? I actually think that we need to pull off a commentary <laughs> on this. I I've, I have puzzled over this verse okay. for years and years so then we come to this very uh interesting verse verse 13 who were not born of bloods nor of the will of flesh nor of will of a husband but from god pastor okri enlighten us well uh i like to read linsky on this he's an old lutheran commentator and what he is saying here uh is is happening is that um it's it's trying to help us understand uh, the two natures coming together in the incarnation, and that uh, Jesus was not born through normal means. The virgin shall conceive, uh, but not with a husband, not a mingling of bloods, the plural bloods there, uh, not through um, the will of flesh, which is the, the procreative will that God implanted in us, and also not by the will of a husband, right, who says, come woman, let us let us uh, make a child that our generation, my generations may continue forth. And so he's saying... Is, it, is this, that how it happened at your house, Pastor Oakley? <laughs> did you say, come woman? I did. I said, come, come woman. Let us let us proceed to the bedchamber. <laughs> uh, but, but no, it, it is the will of God. And really what he's talking about there then is the descending of the Holy Spirit. And you see that in John sometimes. You can tell that he's writing this with the knowledge of the other Gospels. Because he doesn't feel the need to elaborate on a lot of the things that the other Gospels did elaborate on. But he will refer to them, I think, sometimes obliquely. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he's referring to that exactly here. So now we move on to, to verse 14. And uh, who's who, who's going to read that for us? I can read it. But really, wouldn't you say, I mean, this is this is the money right here. This is where what happens is is totally John in John's setup is totally inconceivable. And when we get to this, um, I'm we're gonna do our Amy Gignami thing again. And uh, so when you read it, pause after became and I, I will do the do the thing for the people. Okay. And the word became Gignami flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we have seen his uniqueness. This is what we were talking about last time, that glory is really talking about the uniqueness. Here is the, I mean, the, how unique can you get? I mean, here's the word, second person of the Trinity, actually coming to us as a baby. Yeah, and we're going to see how John builds this uniqueness out. So go ahead. We see we saw his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's just talk about glory since you landed on that. You know, there is a certain uniqueness, and that gets that's get that gets um, drawn out, right? He is the monogenes, the only begotten Son of the Father. Um, but thematically, what we're going to have to do here uh, as we go through John is watch how this glory starts to get flesh put on it, as it were. Ultimately, and I'm going to give it away so that people can kind of anticipate this, the, the moment at which the Father bestows glory upon the Son is his crucifixion. This is the divine uniqueness, if you will, that, that just is mind-blowing, that God gives himself to die to save his wayward, sinful creatures. And isn't it in his death, too, that we see that Jesus isn't playing at being human? He is fully embracing the human humanity because humanity dies in the fall. And, and although he ought not to have died, he takes the fullness of humanity to himself. And, and at the cross, you have to say, okay, this is a man. You have to. And, uh, of course, there are certain... Uh, yes, you have to say this, this was a man. The, the, the big problem for many of the ancients was, was this also God? Right. Right. But you can fall into the ditch on either side, right. and, and those heresies have, have beset us uh, ever, ever since. So let's introduce one of those heresies. One of them is known as docetism, where um, the Son of God only appeared, that's what docetism means, doke in Greek, only appeared to suffer on the cross. It was really only the human nature, not the actual logos that, that suffered on the cross. One argument has been made, uh, and Luther, uh, his whole set of comments on the gospel according to St. John takes this into account is that this is written against an early heretic by the name of Serinthus, who was kind of a proto-docetist yeah. uh, who said that the, the spirit or the divinity had departed from Christ prior to his suffering and death on the cross and that John is written to say, no, 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 no. It was the God-man, Jesus Christ, who suffered on the cross. Can't we also look at verse 14 uh, where he dwelt among us, he tabernacled, which takes oh. us right back to what we said earlier all the way back to Exodus and God being with his people. And even when it became flesh, you know, everybody's eyes glaze over when they start reading the, the instructions uh, that the Lord gave to Moses as to how to go about building this tabernacle. But it was covered in skins. Yeah, and elaborate and planned, right? I mean, as a prototype of this of this final skenosis, of this final tabernacling among us, it indicates that God is a very intentional about this this dwelling in the flesh of men in His Son Jesus Christ. Go go a little bit further with that. I mean, this is really what Jesus is doing: is He's recapitulating Israel. He's He is He is 
showing himself to be the animating thing in all of the temple sacrifices, right? Those are, lest we think that that was like useless blood of goats. Right. That's not it at all. Right. This was gospel. And so this this is how the modern uh, reader looks on to what was happening in the past, that somehow or another these are just building blocks until we get to Jesus. No, this was what the Lord established then for them in a very uh, meticulous detail. It was salvific. Right. And and so it, it's interesting to say, how many how many sacraments do we have in the New Testament? Well, we've got two fundamental ones, baptism and the sacrament of the altar. How many sacraments did they have in the Old Testament? Well, they had circumcision, they had the Passover, and then you'd have to say as many different kinds of sacrifices as there were in the temple. Those two were God's way of connecting his ancient people to the coming crucifixion of his own son in his own tabernacling among us. I I left you speechless. Amen. It's the first time ever. Amen. But I think the language of dwelling too, um, we, we like to focus on the tabernacle aspect. I like to focus on it too, but... I, the dwelling language makes me think about God walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day too and how that was removed and now all of a sudden God is walking with us again in an enfleshed way, in, in a way that's different than in the garden, but it's still there. Uh, I think we sometimes don't appreciate that. Again, I think this is recreation uh, an idea. Yeah, interesting. And so that the temple itself would have been that kind of a recreative thing. Right? Yeah. He reestablishes his walking with humanity by literally walking with them in a pillar yeah. of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. But it's so circumscribed, right? It's right. veiled in the in the in the cloud. It's you better wear this exact clothing. You better wash this exact way. You better do this. You better do that because we're not reconnected yet. We're we're working on we're it's it's well and again I don't want to I don't want to overstate that yeah I think that would be a way a huge overstatement because yeah. that that's to that's to shortcut and say all of the Old Testament stuff right. was just preparatory right. it's not at yeah, all it's, yeah and I, I I caught myself in that but but you do see you do see that it's not the it while it does give you the goods of salvation it's not the fullness of salvation which is Christ. Well, and to just touch on one thing, uh, Deuteronomy twenty three fourteen. when you said that, Pastor Bruss, uh, just a moment ago, it made me think of this verse, for the Lord your God moves about in your camp hmm. to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. And how does he do that in Christ? He puts, he puts all that sin away. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. Good. Yeah, Pastor Kearns, I love your idea that doxa is uniqueness, right? And it's doxa, and that gets fleshed out by saying, uh, the as of the only begotten of the Father. There is only one only begotten of the Father. And um, I, I don't think our people realize when we say, and we say it numerous times, you know, at the end of the... We say the Gloria Patri at the end of the uh, uh, intro it. We say it in the Nunc Dimittis. But we say the glory, and we're talking about the uniqueness of this three-in-one God. Glory just becomes this um, nebulous word that the church throws around, and most people don't, don't even know what they're saying when they're saying it. Mm-hmm. They're saying this is a unique God, one of a kind, nobody like him. 
yeah, you think about the, uh, you know, when, when is the first Gloria get sung uh, in the New Testament? It's at the birth, it's at the birth of the Son of God, right? Glory be to God on high and peace on earth. Maybe, maybe, but going to your wisdom, pa- uh, going to your Proverbs passage, isn't there a, a slight reference to the angels uh, were singing as I was laying the rafters of the earth? We don't know what they were singing. Oh, right. Right. But I, I was saying in the New Testament, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Not in, not in the whole of Scripture, okay. but in okay. the New Testament. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So he's full of grace and truth. Now, th- those terms are those terms are really interesting. So we're, we're uh, you know, you guys know Greek enough to know that um, chairo um, means to rejoice in. And charis is is a rejoicing in. So he is full of charis. Whose charis is he full of? He's full of God's. He's full of God the Father's charis. This is the joy that God the Father has in looking at his son who who obeys the Father's will to save. And then this aletheia is also interesting. The truth, that's a, that's a negated... Um, so lethe in Greek is forgetfulness. Aletheia is unforgetfulness. And as we're going to see what's going to happen, uh, this is actually connected to matters of life and death. The Greeks called, and John picks up this language, the Greeks called their gravestones the word meneon, a, a memorial monument, a memorial. Okay. Does Jesus need a meneon? A memorial mine no because he lives forever in other words the mnemon the monument is this is kind of like a human protest against being forgotten which is brought about by death well and uh, the jewish practice is to to when they visit a grave they take a, a rock and they put it on top of the grave to basically say i haven't forgotten you right Right. This is taken away in Christ because death is, as Jesus is going to say later on, right? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So the aletheia is connected with him being the resurrection and the life. Yeah. And, and of course, it's so interesting because just reading the English text, you would never make a connection to that and do this in remembrance of me. Oh my gosh, or, we'll or, have to talk about right, that later on. Right, but but the but I do like this idea where, in our Western mind, we think that truth is something that is discovered, and what the Bible teaches us is that truth is something that is revealed. remembered and revealed and called back. We don't find the truth as if it's just some kind of thing floating out there. It has to be given to us and restored to us, even. I love that. And, uh, you know, on that business of uh, do this in remembrance of me, we've talked about that before, Pastor Kearns and I have. The word there is aestainamein uh, anamnesin. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if it was to be, if the task of the sacrament of the altar were for us to remember Jesus, he would have had to say aestainamnesin emu. <laughs> okay. But he says aestainamein anamnesin. Into my unto my remembering. Now, if you remember from the Old Testament, uh, every time God remembers, what's He doing? He's Same. getting He's pulling on His britches as He's going to go save somebody. Yep. And so, 
uh, we do this unto, St. Paul puts it very well. He says, uh, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he come again. Uh, and so we're supposed to do it until his, his consummation of the redemption that he began in his crucifixion and resurrection. It's like this, this meal that, cover, that, that you celebrate under the ark of, of God's saving works um, eschatologically on the one hand and um, you know, um, in his crucifixion and death on the other. So you're saying those times where the Lord says uh, he remembered Noah, he remembered Moses just before he was getting ready to, to do something salvific. Exactly. And in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Every time that he remembers, it's that same stem that we see in anamnesis. Well, see, the problem with that is you've got so many churches that have an altar up front, and that altar is engraved with the words, do this in remembrance of me. And just like any church architecture, any church furniture, it's always catechizing. Well, the problem with that piece of furniture is it's it's teaching incorrectly, isn't it? Yeah, it's it, it's taking the gift nature of that sacrament and turning it into Law. A, yeah, a task for you to do. Oh, so then uh, we're, we're on to verse 15. Uh, Pastor Oakry, why don't you just read us out to the end of uh, 18. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace for the law was given through moses grace and truth came through jesus christ no one has ever seen god the only god who is at the father's side he has made him known i just love this (laughs) this is so great unfortunately there's a mistranslation here this one this is he who said the one who comes after me came into existence before me because he is my, what, he ranks before me is what it says? No, he was before me. Yeah, but then it says because he... Ranks before me. Ranks, because he was before me. Yeah. Ranks before me, yeah. Uh, because he was before me. So it, making it a rank thing, that's really weird. These are all temporal things. When is Christ born? In Chronologically, before or after John? After. After. Who goes out and preaches first, John or Christ? John. John. But he's also the one who says, I, I can't even latch the sandal of his shoes or something like this. So maybe maybe the problem is um, uh, what I'm seeing in the Greek text and, and what is not apparent in the English translation. It says, he was, he ain, a me, he was my protos. He was my, not not before me, he was my first. Which, it, which calls to mind Peter's sermon on Pentecost with David saying he came before David too. And and then all of a sudden we're talking about what you were talking about before, where the coming is not a, a unique punctiliar event. Oh, Jesus was born. That's the coming of the light. It's David proclaimed the light. John proclaims the light. Moses proclaimed the light. The light has been proclaimed, but the, but the light, but the source of the light the, is the first of the light is now here. Right, and that and that brings us into, uh, you know, in in the in the in the former days, we uh, God's word was preached to us by His prophets, but now in these last days, He has spoken to us. He has spoken son. to us by His Son, yeah, and that is part of His glory, His uniqueness. 
And I guess my question is, is part of his uniqueness that he comes to us full of grace and truth? It's not that the prophets don't proclaim grace and truth, but but they don't embody it. <laughs> right. That's the difference. Yeah. 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 Yep. It's his pleroma. It's his fullness. Is grace upon grace is, because then you go into 17. Okay. So let, let me back up. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And so... The second grace there would be the law as given through Moses. And then the first grace there, it's grace upon grace, it's grace and truth which came through Jesus Christ, i.e. the gospel. Correct. But I, I think it's a mistake. I think people people misunderstand. A Lutheran hears, hears Moses juxtaposed with Christ and thinks, oh, this is law and gospel, Right. Um, and and even it says the law came through Moses. Well, we got to remember that in the in the New Testament, when when the word law gets used, it gets used in numerous different ways. Sometimes it's the condemning law, without a doubt, right? Um, but oftentimes it's just the Torah. So the Torah came through Moses. So that was a grace. That was a one a right. great good thing. Sure. Why? Because what did God do? Well, there He gave us the Proto Evangelium in uh, Genesis three fifteen. There He set up His skene, His tent, where He tabernacled among His people Israel and forgave their sins through the blood of beasts, which were connected through the to the crucifixion of Jesus. So really, um, yeah, you say grace upon grace. That's like the old King James translation. The Greek literally says we have received. Even a grace in the place of a grace. Anti charitos, in the place of a grace. So what was the grace that we had before? Moses. That's great. That's just as you said. The sacrificial system. It was wonderful. Which Jesus didn't, did, didn't rebuke, right? He went to the temple. Right. He didn't say, get this place out of here. Right. He said this place. He cleansed is it. Gonna, it's gonna, he cleansed it. He says it's going to have to pass away. Right. But he didn't condemn it, which I think I run into this. We a lot of people think that Jesus hated the temple. So you know, one of the one of the hymns we have in the in the hymnal, which I've objected to for a long time, uh, is "Not All the Blood of Beasts." Have you heard that? You, you know that one. Not all the blood of beasts on um, Israel's um, altars um, slain. Um, could wash away this sin of mine. And then it goes on, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the fact of the matter is, all the blood of beasts um, did. did wash away the yeah. sins of the ancient Israelites. Not because it was a lamb that got slain or a goat that got slain, but because it was God's sacrament, his word connected to a certain thing that point that that was hooked to the cross. Yeah. Because then you really make God a liar when he says, oh, this is your sin sacrifice. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, but you didn't really mean that, God. Right. Because here's Hebrews. Well, that's not what that's not what they're saying in Hebrews. They're just saying that we see the fullness of it. And that and it, it's a confusion of how we understand type and, and anti-type. It's not the type isn't simply a fiction. It is the real thing. It's just not the real thing not fully realized. There you go. I love that. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, and I think Hebrews has maybe, uh, maybe dispensationalism, Pastor Kearns, has led to this idea. Yeah, absolutely. Could you define that for our, for our listeners, dispensationalism? Yeah, it's, uh, it is a way of interpreting the Bible, breaking it up into various seasons or epochs 
in that God deals with people differently, and usually each dispensation, it ends with something cataclysmic. Some major event. So, for instance, uh, the first dispensation is what we were already talking about when Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the garden in the fullness of the image of God. Well, what ended that dispensation? The fall. So then you move to, and that would have been called the, uh, the age of innocence or something like this. So then you move to the next dispensation, and that's going to end at the flood. And Noah and his wife and his sons and his daughters, uh, daughter-in-laws will be saved. And so there's a dispensation for every place. You know, just flop your Bible open, and it's a different dispensation. And the point you're making is, is that when uh, Hebrews were uh, involved in tabernacle or temple sacrifice, that's a different dispensation. And even Jesus himself, he actually moves through two dispensations, if I'm not mistaken. For instance, um, the Sermon on the Mount is preached in one dispensation. And his crucifixion brings us into yet another dispensation, uh, which, if I'm not mistaken, we're in that dispensation now. Still. It's the age of grace. And, and isn't it the case that in, in those former dispensations, uh, uh, the way these people have figured this out, mm-hmm. uh, it's largely law orientation. So, so like God, God interacted with his people entirely by the law, um, whatever that law might have been, there, right? There might have been a, like the law about Cain or whatever, entirely by the law, and you were saved by the law, but now what he's done is he's, he's sort of done an about-face in history, and now he saves us through the gospel. Sure, and it, 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 it makes it very difficult for the layman to even understand the sermon, because if he's been taught dispensationalism, the question then becomes, well, what dispensation are we in? And somehow or another... If God would have said something in a prior dispensation, then that really doesn't apply. That doesn't apply to me. Right. You right. see, you, yeah, yeah. Whatever, yeah. Is, whatever dispensation you're in yeah. is how God relates so to So the you. Old Testament's like out, right? Exactly. It's, 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 just, it's, just, it's just, just like history. background noise. It's just history. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which, which, of course, we reject because Jesus comes along, and Luke is so good at this, right? Uh, all of the law and the prophets proclaim this mm-hmm. it's there's no it's this isn't plan this isn't plan f mm-hmm. right and, and, that, and that's the problem with dispensationalism is even it says look god really wants to save people through the law and then he finally he finally realized with jesus okay obviously i can't do that <laughs> so i'll i'll go do this jesus thing but but there's going to be a thousand year reign where the law is going to reign big, and that's a that's a different dispensation. Yeah, that, I mean, the, it, the it's, it's fascinating. Kingdom. It's yeah. fascinating, and and it just chops up God into little right. chunks, right? And, and his like, plan, his yeah, plan, yeah, yeah. becomes yeah. chopped I, I up. Don't, I don't even know what you do with the Proto Evangelium in that in that thinking. I don't know what you do with that, and I don't know what you do with something like uh, Christ as the, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, right? I mean. Yeah, but I'm reminded of Pastor Oakry's line uh, that he said about something else. Um, But if he were to hear or we were to hear a presentation on dispensationalism, uh, Pastor Oakry at the end would probably say, sounds pretty good if I didn't go to seminary. 
<laughs> oh, that's a good. Yeah, I mean, this sure. is why this is why some training is good, so we can yeah. avoid that collective ignorance that we had talked about earlier. Just because we don't just sit here like on our our ministerial throne and say obey us, but we we have been trained in some ways to think and read um, that are beneficial to God's people. I mean, that's that's the whole point of the ministry, yeah. and and of course to handle the mysteries. Indeed. Indeed. So we got, uh, yeah, so he's full of grace and truth. So he's full of God's delight and he's full of, you know, really this is a kind of a recapitulation of resurrection and life. Those things came through Christ. And I love verse 18. To me, this is, this is so rich. No one has ever seen God before. Only begotten God, the one being in the bosom of the Father, this one has made him known. If you want to know God... You must see Christ. Which does show us that there is a certain, it, it, not to say that it isn't salvific, but there is an imperfection to the former ways, right? The, the temple system didn't reveal God in his utmost fullness. And I think you see that. I mean, that's why the people in the Old Testament were constantly chasing after other gods and idolatry was such a huge problem. And then somehow they come back from the Babylonian captivity and miraculously they're like, okay, God is our God, and and you actually see this tremendous history of them fighting diligently for that truth. And then Jesus steps on the scene, and now we're now we're in the other ditch. Now they're like, God is our God, and so you can't be our God, and uh, and and so they still can't see it because somehow the system they have hasn't revealed God's fullness to them because they don't understand God's mercy, and that's why the Pharisees look at the tax collectors and say. I hate you and 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 I despise you because you are ruining this for the rest of us. <laughs> and here I am fighting the good fight. I do not disagree at all with what you said. But just to add another detail, wouldn't you say that during that Babylonian captivity and then of course as they come back and this is after uh you know uh 400 years uh, they, they, it's almost like they invent an entirely new system that it's based on the Pharisees and the and the and the synagogues. They don't, they don't have what Solomon and David had. They're trying to keep what they used to have, but they can't have it, and so they develop an entirely new system. And so now, being catechized and reared in that system, Jesus comes along, and it's so foreign to what multiple lifetimes of people have believed. Am I making sense here? Well, you are. I just think it's fascinating that that God's people took this new system of synagogues and made it the model for the church. And I would say that what, what the big difference was, they came back from the Babylonian captivity with a greater grasp of writing and, and scribing that made it possible for them to get the word of God into new places outside of the temple. I mean, you have that whole scene with um, with Hezekiah, I believe, where they come and they say, oh man, we just found the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, what? There was, there's a Bible? <laughs> I mean, they had the sacrificial system. They had all the stuff, but they lost, the, you get this sense, like they had no idea about the word. And then he reads the word and he's like, oh no. <laughs> Call everybody together. We're going to read this cover to cover with everybody. 
Um, yes, I understand. My point is, is if Jesus would have come at that time. Yeah. Well, he came in the fullness of time. And so he came, he came, and this was an important development in all of this. Um, and I don't, I don't want to sound weird about kind of how history progresses, but everything was in its place for, for Christ to come. No doubt. But my point is, is there was a new system put in place that was even further removed from what the Lord instituted, instituted uh, priests, sacrifice, temple, all of these things that were all very salvific and very plain for even a, a, a child to understand that the innocent lamb is going to die in our place for our sins, and we're going we're gonna to come back to the tent, and we're going to eat it. By the time Jesus gets on the scene, there has been a generation of folks who, as we've talked about before, are good, upstanding men, i.e. Pharisees. But their interpretation was so off because they were thinking that living a good life and being an Israelite is what saved you. Right. So it was. It wasn't the. It wasn't the raw material that was wrong. Right. It was, it was the uh, the uptake. The the um, yeah. The way they, they understood it. And yeah. this is what Jesus was fighting against all the time. Right. right. You say that if you don't have, uh, you, you're not sleeping with another woman, that you're not committing adultery. I say to you, here he is chipping away at this false system that they had had erected. Yeah, a pretty light ethical system, ultimately, right? But I think, too, they had bought into the idea, and you see this in modern Judaism, where they don't believe that the Messiah is coming, even though that's the foundation of their scripture. They say, well, you know, probably not going to happen. And I think what they reached the point is, even in Jesus' day, they said, we'd rather we'd rather hear the promise than actually have the promise fulfilled. And I think that makes the huge difference between uh, the unbelieving Jew and the believing Jew. Is they said, no, this is the fulfillment of the promise. I mean, that's all of Peter's sermon, right? That's the summation of Peter's sermon. Here is the fulfillment of all of the promises. And I think so many of the Jews said, no, we, we, we're going to live our life just liking the promise. Kind of, kind of like at, if a Christian were to be faced with the last day when the Lord Jesus returns and say, you know what, Jesus, why don't you go back to heaven? I'll stay here and have my church. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But I think like you, every Hollywood movie is built on that premise, and I think a lot of Christians buy into it that the end, the end is not great. Is not greater than what we have now. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or it's, but it's actually like terrifying. Oh, ter- yeah, bad. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. bad. We we got to do we got to do what it takes to stop God from ending the world instead of saying, "Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly." Which mm. is so, it's so weird. It's so, it's it's using the 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 puzzle pieces of, of Christianity and then putting them together in the dumbest possible way. <laughs> well, that takes us to the end of verse 18. And, and um, you know, maybe it's worth just closing with this word. You know, John is very clear here. Nobody has ever seen God before. Uh, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, this one has made him known. Um, Christ makes God known through his holy Christian church today through his word proclaimed, through his baptism, through his body and blood in the sacrament of the altar. And if you would know God, uh, this is where uh, you need to be. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. 
To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.